It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with co-host David Feldman and the rest of the team. Hello, David. Good morning. And, of course, the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello. This is a program, listeners, you will not find redundant concerning what's going on and what has gone on between Israel and the Palestinians. That's right, Ralph. On today's program, we welcome back a guest who's done the show a number of times before. We're going to be joined by author Miko Peled. Longtime listeners may remember Mr. Peled as the general son. His father was one of the heroes of the 1967 war, and his maternal grandfather was one of the signers of Israel's Declaration of Independence. We spoke to Miko previously about his turn from Israeli Special Forces Red Beret to staunch advocate for Palestinian rights. Mr. Pellet is going to debunk many of the justifications the Israeli government gives for the bombing and ground assault on Gaza and much of the doublespeak it uses, phrases such as existential threat, human shields, terrorist organization, anti-Semitic, and on and on. And also, Ralph is going to pay tribute to former First Lady, the late Rosalind Carter. And as always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our steadfast corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, in our ongoing coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, let's speak to the general son, David. Miko Peled is an author, writer, speaker, and human rights activist living in the United States. He is considered by many to be one of the clearest voices calling for justice in Palestine, support of the Palestinian call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, BDS, and the creation of a single democracy with equal rights in all of historic Palestine. Mr. Peled was born and raised in Jerusalem. His grandfather was a signer of the Israeli Declaration of Independence, and his father was a general in the 1967 war. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Miko Peled. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome back again, Miko. I thought we'd do something new that a lot of the progressive press has not really covered and go through one by one the Israeli government justifications for what they're doing. So I hope you'll indulge us in this examination and get your views on it. The first thing the Israeli government does is say Hamas started this on October 7th, and we're just retaliating. Your response? Palestinians could not have possibly started this since the Palestinians are engaged in resistance. Resistance is always a response to oppression and occupation. Nothing ever is initiated by resistance. Resistance is always a response. So it's absurd to claim that somehow Palestinians have initiated this war. The war began 75 years ago when the Zionist movement declared war on the Palestinian people and began a brutal campaign of genocide and ethnic cleansing that has been going on since, you know, for 75 years, since before the State of Israel was established, actually. The State of Israel, as we know, because Amnesty International, you know, produced a report last year, has been engaged or has been in de facto crime of apartheid, which is a crime against humanity. So Palestinians have been subjected to apartheid, which is a crime against humanity. They've been subjected to ethnic cleansing and to at least genocidal policies for 75 years. So to somehow claim that Palestinians, when they resist this horrific reality in which they live, are initiating, are starting a war is, you know, it's, it's ludicrous, it's absurd. Uh-huh. The second thing that the Israeli government says is they have to go full bore into Gaza because Hamas is an existential threat to Israel. Your response? Well, let me just backtrack. I mean, the claim that somehow what the Zionists have done or are doing in Palestine is somehow a response to or a result of the Holocaust is not true. I mean, the, 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 the plans and the, and the beginning of the execution of the ethnic cleansing of Palestine and the Zionist takeover of Palestine started long before the Holocaust. And very few Israelis are actually descendants of Holocaust survivors. Very few Israelis have any connection to the Holocaust at all. So it's often used as an explanation, but it actually historically is not true. The Zionist movement designed on Palestine began long before the rise of Hitler or the Holocaust. So I think that's important to put that in perspective. How about Hamas being an existential threat to Israel? 
Well, let's start with this. Palestinians have never had a military force. They've never had an army. They've never had a tank. What they have had over the years are small militia groups, small guerrilla groups, uh, very small militias that engaged in, in resistance. To say that any any small resistance group, particularly coming out of the Gaza Strip, which is one of the poorest and most oppressed areas on Earth, is an existential threat to a state that has one of the largest and best equipped and best trained armies, which I refer to as a terrorist organization, but armies, including nuclear weapons. You know, I mean, I don't know how anybody can say this with a straight face. What we did see, however, which was very interesting on October the 7th, is that this small group of fighters that came out of the Gaza Strip, which I'll say again, is one of the poorest and most oppressed areas in the world, was able to paralyze the state of Israel and show that this entire Israeli army and all of its force are basically a paper tiger. So, I mean, I think this is really the reality. The fact that they're calling it an existential threat is absurd. The fact that they are inefficient, ineffective, and unable to defend their own citizens is due to their own fault and they're all hubris and their own inability to function as a state and maintain an army beyond just killing civilians. And the third claim the Israeli government makes is they don't and have never intentionally targeted civilians. Columnist Charles Lane of the Washington Post bought this in two columns along with many other very little knowledgeable columnists in the U.S. press. They don't intentionally target civilians. Your response? Palestinians have never had a military. They've never had an army. So anything Israel does is targeting civilians. Now, in 1948, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, these were all civilians. Over a million people, civilians were thrown out of Palestine, and God only knows. I don't think there's even a number of how many were killed in massacres during that year. And then all the attacks against Palestinians in Gaza, in other places, in refugee camps around Palestine, and most and probably most dramatically over the last 10 years, these massive assaults against Gaza, where Israel kills thousands upon thousands of civilians, Anybody who says, I mean, it's it's absurd. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. You know, Israel has been has been targeting civilians as a strategy. The strategy is to kill civilians. The strategy is to destroy Palestinians, to destroy their monuments, to destroy their homes, to destroy their history, to destroy their country. That is the strategy. It's absurd to say that Israel doesn't target civilians. Targeting civilians is all Israel ever does, because that its strategy, its, you know, declared goal is to get rid of the Palestinians. Well, since October 7th, they've bombed crowded marketplaces, schools, mosques. Yeah, I mean, they always have. Apartment I mean, buildings, <laughs> apartment buildings homes, always. fleeing refugees at instructions of the Israeli military, and they bomb them fleeing to the south of Gaza. Another claim that the Israeli government is saying is that Hamas uses human shields. And before he responds to that, there's a, a letter by Charles D. Smith, who is a professor emeritus of Middle East history at the University of Arizona, author of the book Palestine and the Arab-Israeli Conflict. And in his letter recently to the Washington Post, he has this, in fact, Israel has used Palestinians as human shields for decades, including placing individuals in front of Israeli soldiers making children move wires in homes to see whether the home was booby-trapped, etc. This practice was finally outlawed by Israel's high court in 2005 after years of protests by human rights activists, end quote. What's your response? Hamas uses human shields. Urban warfare, by the way, listeners, involves going in and out of buildings and ducking here and there when your opponent has complete control of the air, the land, and sea with modern weapons. By the way, as you know, Miko, in the battle for Israel's independence, or what the Palestinians call unleashing the Nakba for them, the catastrophe, the Irgun and the Stern Gang, as it was called, these were the resistance groups, used all kinds of civilian buildings and going after the British soldiers who were controlling Palestine under the mandate flowing from World War One. Anyway, your response to the human shield, which they use all the time to divert attention from the slaughter of civilians in Gaza. Well, it's part of a larger argument, which is that Israel attempts to justify the fact that Israel is killing civilians by the thousands to say that, well, the Palestinian fighters are somehow hiding, you know, among population centers. And that is how they're using human shields. And I'll have two things to say to that. Number one, 
if anybody ever inquires, where is Israeli army headquarters? Israeli army headquarters in downtown Tel Aviv. It's in one of the nicest parts of downtown Tel Aviv, where all the nicest restaurants and cafes and apartment buildings and museums are. That's where Israeli army headquarters is. So does that mean that it's legitimate to the people who live in Tel Aviv, civilians who live in Tel Aviv are legitimate targets? You know, I used to live in San Diego. San Diego has several military bases right smack in the middle of the civilian population. So does that mean that the people in California and Southern California are all legitimate targets? In other words, making this statement is so dangerous because it opens up possibilities of such horror that, you know, we're afraid to talk about, we're afraid to mention. So that's the first argument. The second argument that I would make is that the notion that it's okay to kill civilians, it's okay to harm a child, because maybe there's some, you know, fighter or somebody who lives or is hiding, you know, in their home or next to their home or under their home. The notion that that justifies killing civilians is absolutely grotesque. And that's precisely the problem. They're trying to justify something that is unjustifiable in any way, shape or form by blaming the other side. No, anybody, anybody who is willing to harm a child because they think maybe there's a fighter who is in the vicinity, is out of their minds. That is a total lack of humanity. That means there's a there's absolutely no moral compass at all to anybody who argues that this is somehow justifiable. Let's look at the death toll. The, the Hamas health ministry, they only counted the deaths that were registered in hospitals and morgues in the first few weeks, and they reached 11,000 dead. But of course, people are dying. Children are dying under the rubble. They're dying from disease. They're dying when ambulances are blown up, they're dying in their apartment buildings, in shelters, in schools, etc. But the press, and Hamas doesn't seem to be that concerned about a huge undercount in the death toll, not to mention the injury and spreading diseases because there's no medicines. Even people with diabetes can't get insulin, people with cancer can't get chemotherapy. You have the elderly, you have the tiny babies who are dying without their parents around because their parents have been killed. I wrote a tweet the other day, Miko, that if 20,000 precision bombs and missiles were dropped on all the civilian areas of Philadelphia, which geographically is about the size of Gaza, you think there'd only be 14,000 fatalities, no hospitals, you know, nothing, just rubble. Of course, how do you explain this vast undercounting of the death toll, not to mention the injuries and the illness. Well, the only way I think to explain it is that, number one, the resources are very limited. Their ability to access those areas where all this destruction is taking place is limited. I mean, they can only go, they, there's nowhere safe. So in order to go and count the dead, you know, under under the rubble of buildings, you know, the, all the buildings that were destroyed, you know, is, is a huge undertaking. You need resources, you need manpower, you need the time to do it while you're, you know, have to treat what, you know, the, the more urgent matters. So these things will probably surface, these numbers I'm sure will surface later on. But we know that, I remember listening to Matt Gilbert just a few days ago, he and I were in Jordan at the same time a couple of weeks ago. And he was He's a Norwegian doctor. Right. Matt Gilbert is a, is a Norwegian doctor who's been working in Gaza and working with Palestinians for decades. And he has very strong connections to the Ministry of Health in Gaza and to the doctors who work at the various hospitals in Gaza. And he was talking about that there were over 2,000 children who were not accounted for, which means they are buried somewhere in the rubble, you know, either dying a slow, horrifying death or crushed to death by, you know, by the buildings. And so you need resources for this. You know, the, the authorities in Gaza barely have the resources to do what needs to be done urgently and deal with this savagery that they've been subjected to. So I'm sure these numbers will surface later on. I mean, so some of the things, uh, they're, they're, I'm sure they have more urgent matters to deal with right now. All right. The next argument is Israel's a democracy and the press and media is free to cover whatever they do in Israel or elsewhere in Gaza. Well, there have been 52 journalists since October 7th in Gaza, killed by Israeli firepower, including some of their entire families. And that's the figure as of November 20, which sets a, an all-time record in any seven-week period since the Society of Journalists started covering journalist deaths 30 years ago. 
Describe the media attention. Gideon Levy told us he hasn't been allowed to go into Gaza for many years. Can the media go in? Are they just embedded? Are they excluded? What's going on? Well, my understanding is that Israel is not allowing media into Gaza and that there are some, a select number of Israeli journalists who are embedded with the forces and they are the only ones who are allowed to report. So that's the reality right now. And this is not the first time this has happened. I mean, after the massacre in Jenin in 2002, it was the same thing. Israel did not allow journalists to go in for a very long time. So that, you know, that puts that to rest. In terms of Israel being a democracy, you know, that has never been true. Israel has never been a democracy. It's been a, an apartheid state. Again, I'll refer the listeners to the Amnesty Report of last year. Israel has been engaged in apartheid and committing the crime of apartheid since it was established. And so you can't claim to be a democracy and when you're practicing an apartheid regime. The fact that certain segments of the population you govern have privileges doesn't make you a democracy. And so that, I think, needs to be put to rest as well. Israel was never intended even to be a democracy. Or the other claim is that Hamas is vulnerable to being exterminated because it is a terrorist organization. But, of course, people in Israel know that Netanyahu, for years, has had a strategy to break up any two-state solution with the Palestinian Authority by supporting and funding Hamas. Hamas was fostered into larger impact by both the U.S. and Israel in the 1980s, by the way, listeners. But in 2019, quoted in the New York Times by Roger Cohn a few days ago, he was quoted telling his own Likud party that our strategy is to support and fund Hamas. I mean, why isn't that resonating politically in Israel? That's fairly well known, isn't it? They're supporting what they call a terrorist organization. I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that Israel had anything to do with the creation of Hamas. The history of the creation of Hamas is that they were, it was the first intifada and the Islamic movement decided there was time to join the resistance and they established the Islamic resistance organization, which was Hamas, and they began operating immediately as a resistance organization. And then uh, throughout the first intifada, throughout the 90s and so on, and to this day, they have been operating as part of the Palestinian resistance. I don't, I don't believe that it's true that Israel had anything to do with that, although I believe the claim to do it has been put out there in order to attack Hamas and to, to take away its legitimacy as a legitimate Palestinian organization. It's one of many tactics that have been put in place to delegitimize the authenticity of Hamas as a legitimate Palestinian well, resistance. I don't think anybody in Palestine well, believes that it was either. Well, you're right. They didn't start Hamas. It was an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. But they began seeing it as a counterweight to the secular Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, the U.S., that is, in Israel. Now, are you saying that Netanyahu was not telling his Likud party the truth, that he really hasn't been supporting and funding Hamas over the recent years? Absolutely not. I think, again, it's, it's, these are all attempts to attack Hamas and to delegitimize it in the eyes of Palestinians, as though Palestinians would believe what Netanyahu is saying over what they know and they've, they've seen with their own eyes and, and heard with their own ears. So I, I don't believe that for one minute. And again, I know that there's this conversation about these are two factions, but I don't, I don't believe for one minute that Israel or the U.S. funded or supported Hamas in any way, shape, or form. And, and you know, there's a history. I mean, these things are well known. The actions of these organizations of the different groups within the Palestinian resistance are well known. The last yeah. claim is the perennial. This is the one that helps freeze Congress. Anybody who criticizes the Israeli government for what they're doing to the Palestinians and other neighboring countries is called anti-Semitic. And the members of Congress are totally fearful of being targeted. Even Arab Americans like Daryl Issa from a safe seat in California, Republican, voted for one of the AIPAC resolutions a few years ago while Israel was in one of its periodic slaughters of Gazans. And he was asked, you're Syrian American. You're very wealthy. You come from a safe district in Southern California. What are you doing adding to the 400 members of the House plus in condemning the, the Palestinians who are being slaughtered? And as Gideon Levy said, totally defenseless. And he said, I didn't want to be accused of being anti-Semitic. Give us your response on the cheapening of that phrase, given its origination in the Russian pogroms and the Nazi Holocaust. If you're not willing to take the heat, you should stay out of the fire. So anybody who is not courageous enough to stand up and, and speak the truth and stand up for what is right, 
because they might be called this name or that name, uh, you know, it's, it's cowardice, it's hypocrisy. And that's all I have to say. I mean, being called anti-Semitic is a small price to pay when you talk about standing for the rights of millions of people who have been living under such terror for so many decades. So that's all I have to say. I mean, the claim itself is, of course, absurd. It has nothing to do with anti-Semitic. But the Zionist movement, this has been a strategy, you know, that goes back, you know, decades and decades to always use that threat and always, you know, call people anti-Semitic when they are opposed or when they reject or even when they oppose slightly the Zionist agenda, this is nothing new. Of course, it's been hyped recently with a new definition of anti-Semitism and so forth. But this is something they've been using for a very long time, and it's time to call their bluff and say, you are, you know, it's, it's absurd. It's, you know, the racist, people who are pushing forward a racist agenda, which is Zionism, who are supporting an apartheid state, which is based on racial discrimination and genocidal policies, they dare to accuse others of racism. If that isn't the worst kind of crazy, I don't know what is. And nobody dares to stand up and say, how dare you allow yourself to call other people racist when you engage in racist genocidal policies? And by the way, if American institutions, both governmental and non-governmental, claim to have zero tolerance for racism, why in the world do they allow Zionist groups, pro-Israel groups to function on campuses? Why do they have Zionist groups lobbying throughout the country for all these different aspects of Israeli agenda? You know what I mean? If there's zero tolerance for racism, there should be zero tolerance for Zionism because it is like anti-Semitism. Zionism, like anti-Semitism, like white supremacy and all, all other forms of racism are all racism and there should be no tolerance for all of them. And again, politicians like Daryl Issa and others who are afraid to stand up because they don't want to take the heat, you know, it's the worst kind of cowardice because number one, it's so easily refuted. It's so easy to refute the claim that this is anti-Semitism. I mean, I'm sure you've been subjected to this as well. And it's so easily refutable. So rather than stand up and refute it and argue and stand for what's right, people are cowards. And that's the only thing you can say about that. Well, the real armed forces backing anti-Semitism now in the current situation is anti-Semitism laced with genocidal intent and implementation against the Arabs of Palestine. You have often spoken of the, the way you're treated as a Israeli citizen even though you're a very prominent defender of Palestinian rights, the way you're treated in Israel when you go to the airport and go into Israel, compared to the way Palestinians are treated in the West Bank or in Israel proper. Can you give us a description of that comparison, sort of the definition of what apartheid is really all about? Apartheid is all about the, exactly providing or allow, giving privilege to a certain segment of the population. So the state of Israel, the apartheid regime, which is known as the state of Israel, has declared itself a state for Jewish people. So if you're not Jewish, and now if you're going to establish a Jewish state in an Arab country where the majority of the population are Arabs, in this case, Palestine, then you have to engage in ethnic cleansing in order to create some kind of a majority. You have to engage in at least genocidal policies, if not outright genocide. And you have to impose an apartheid regime, which will provide privilege only to the segment of the population that you prefer, which in this case happens to be Israeli Jews. So, and by the way, all three of these, by the way, are, are defined as crimes against humanity, which like you said, many of the definitions came out after the Holocaust. And here we are three years later after the Holocaust, and the world allows this to, these crimes against humanity to take place in Palestine against Palestinians. So when I land, of course, I have an Israeli... By, by the way, this has changed recently. I can talk about that if you want. But you know, normally when I land, I land with, with a passport and I go right in. And when I get arrested, which I think is even more interesting, when I get arrested in the West Bank, standing with my Palestinian sisters and brothers, you know, my treatment is with kid gloves. And I usually go home at the end of the day, or worst case scenario, I spend, you know, 24 or 36 hours in a jail cell. Palestinians get beaten, get thrown in a cell, and nobody knows when they're coming home. It's a whole different, it's a completely different reality. Israelis get, you know, all the water they need. Palestinians, the entire Palestinian population in Palestine receives only 3% of the water supply throughout the entire country. And today, Palestinians are the majority of the population. You know, home demolitions for Palestinians within you know, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, you know, we're talking about tens of thousands of homes being demolished and home demolition orders, you know, that exist, you know, in homes of Palestinian citizens of Israel. And not one 
of these cases of home demolitions applies to Israeli Jews. And you would think, so Israeli Jews never build without a permit. Is that even possible? I mean, I know for a fact that that's not true. So, I mean, it goes on and on and on. There's policy, there's law, and then there's just the reality. You know, the reality is sometimes just the way it is. Nobody needs to pass a law. Everybody understands that, you know, water supply goes to the Jews. That's the way it is. Palestinians have water issues. It's not our problem. Mikla, is it true that Palestinians cannot legally collect rainwater in cisterns because rainwater considered the property of Israel? Yes, and they can't dig wells. They're not permitted to dig wells on their own land. The water is the property of the state of Israel, and it distributes it very effectively. You know, when you consider how small the country is and how very often the Israeli settlement is across the street from a Palestinian community, and one gets all the water they want any time of day, any time, you know, any time of day, and the other across the street get maybe seven, eight, ten hours of water per week. And how you do that, you need a very sophisticated system to do that. And here we are, Palestinians only get 3% of the water, and that's how it's done. So it's a kind of discrimination that, you know, it defies any kind of reason or, or, or logic other than to say, this is an apartheid state, we are privileged, and by the way, if you want to kill people without using, you know, spending money on a bullet, then denying them water is a sure way to do it. And denying them electricity and denying their hospitals resources is a sure way to do that. So I think that's part of the genocidal policies that are taking place. Two questions before we go to Steve and David. What do you think the end goal is of the invasion of Gaza? I don't believe there's any planning or any strategy behind this whatsoever. This is pure revenge. What we're seeing is vengeance of a military force in a state that had been humiliated. And just like any bully, any gangster who's been humiliated, they take it out on the weakest people they can find, people who, who cannot defend themselves. That's what we're seeing. I mean, this is no, there's no strategic thinking behind this. There's no planning behind this. This is revenge. And this is the Israeli government who, again, was found to run a country that has no defenses whatsoever. It cannot provide even the minimum defense to its citizens, as we saw on October the 7th, the half of the country was occupied by these Palestinian fighters, and the country is still paralyzed, by the way. This is an act of revenge, and to say to the people, to their constituents, look, we're doing, we're, look what we're doing. We're finally letting them have it by murdering all these people and, 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 and killing Palestinians, which is what Israelis have been asking for. So there's no thinking beyond that. It's revenge for the sake of revenge. It's savagery for the sake of savagery. It's brutality in the, its purest form. There is no other reason than the brutality itself. It's killing for the sake of killing so that they can show they're doing something bad. And the Israeli government is turning on many of its own people who are dissenting, speaking out, firing them, arresting them. And even in this country, the police tactics are being imported because of the dissent and resistance against what Congress and Biden have been doing. Full-throated support without conditions, without even meeting requirements of human rights and only weapons to be used for defensive purposes in federal law. They're disregarding that in Congress, in the White House. So how do you characterize the resistance? How long will it be before the Israeli people will oust Netanyahu and his coalition? He's now lower in the polls than he's ever been in his long career in Israel. What's your prognosis? Well, the first part of the question, you know, I, what I was going to say, I was in Jordan. I was planning to go across the river to the other side, to Palestine, and I was advised that I would probably be arrested, and I, nobody knows how long that, would, that process would take, so I ended up staying in Jordan. Here in the United States, students are being arrested on campuses at Dartmouth. They arrested activists. I was at an event at the University of Indiana just a few days ago, and the students had to occupy the room because the administration canceled the event on them. And thankfully, the students were bright enough and courageous enough to just occupy the room and, and insist that the event go ahead. So, I mean, we're seeing terrible, terrible things, both done to Israelis who dare to dissent. And we're talking about even just the families of the prisoners that were taken by the Palestinians that are now in Gaza. Even their family members, when they protest and demand release, you know, they're beaten up and called traitors. I don't believe that Netanyahu is going anywhere. I think Netanyahu is going to stay in power for a very long time. Number one, there is no opposition, so there's really nobody else to vote for. Number two, he's doing exactly what Israelis want him to do right now, which is exact this brutal revenge against the Palestinians. And, you know, Israeli politics, and you know this well, you know, it's a game of musical chairs. And in this particular case, over the last, well, more than a decade now, Netanyahu always maintains his position as the prime minister and all the other chairs, you know, all the other children, you know, run around and try to capture whatever chair they can, the best seat that they can. 
But I don't think Netanyahu is going anywhere. I don't think Israelis are going to unseat him because they don't have number one. There's no well, nobody else that can do what he's doing, and they know it. And everybody's involved. There's nobody to vote for that hasn't been part of this of this you know catastrophic failure of, of the Israeli government, and that is providing any kind of opposition to what Netanyahu is doing. Everybody on this issue is together. So I don't believe Netanyahu is going anywhere anytime soon at all. It's quite extraordinary because in many parliamentary systems from Japan to Europe, if there was an October 7th colossal military and intelligence failure like this, they would have immediately resigned. They would have been pushed out. The government would have collapsed. But then, as you indicate, Israel is not exactly a parliamentary democracy. You think they won a larger war into Lebanon and taking over all the West Bank and Gaza and driving the residents into the desert toward Jordan and Egypt. You think that's what we're going to see in the next few weeks? Well, I think that might be what they want, but I don't think we're going to see that. They don't have the capability to do that. They don't have the capability to do that. The king of Jordan and, and the Egyptians said, absolutely, they will not take any more refugees. And that's that. They made it very, very clear very early on. So that's not happening. They will kill. I mean, you know, the, the number of prisoners has doubled. Israel had 6,000 prisoners on October the 6th, and today there are double, almost 12,000 Palestinian prisoners being held in Israeli jails. And they are terrorizing Palestinians everywhere. They're killing Palestinians everywhere they can. I'm sure they want all the Palestinians to disappear into the desert, but that's not going to happen. They're never going to get that. And I don't think they have capability to push for that either. So the best thing that we're going to see, the best thing that's going to happen for Israel is that this is going to go on and then there's going to be some kind of a ceasefire and then Israel will violate the ceasefire. They're going to try to keep killing and destroying as long as the rest of the world allows them allows them to do that. And when the world decides to stand up and stop Israel and impose sanctions and boycott and divest from Israel and turn Israel to the pariah it needs to be and kick Israel out of the Olympics and, and make sure that Israeli teams can participate in sports and Israeli diplomatic missions are closed down and on and on then we will see a change and then we'll be able to talk about a real future, you know, for Palestine. We've been talking with Miko Peled, author of General Sun, really gripping book about how he came to be a champion of Palestinian rights. He served in the IDF. His sister's daughter was killed in a, a Palestinian assault. That brought him to focus on the cause of all this, the dispossession of Palestinians and the oppression of Palestinians. But it goes back further than that, Miko, when in the late 1940s, his father was a high military ranking officer. And when the Palestinians left, fled and evacuated some of their very nice homes in the cities, Miko's mother and father were, were offered a choice of homes. Which home would you like? And Miko's mother said, none of these homes, they don't belong to me. They belong to the Palestinians. So I think that might have been the upbringing spark that led you to be who you are today, Miko. Steve? Yes, thanks, Ralph. Miko, what is your vision for this area of the world, Israel-Palestine, and how would you achieve that vision? Well, to begin with, I think we need to refrain from calling it Israel. I think Israel is the name that the apartheid regime has given the country and that has no legitimacy. So by using the name, I believe we legitimize it. I believe the future for Palestine and the future for Israelis and Palestinians can be a future of peace, but not under the apartheid regime. I think once we do, the international community works to dismantle the apartheid regime, like I said earlier, through sanctions and, and serious boycotts and so forth, then... We will, in a post-apartheid, in a free democratic Palestine with equal rights, we can, the, the possibility of peace between Israelis and Palestinians can materialize. So I think it's important the way we frame the question needs to be not whether someone is pro-Palestinian or pro-Israeli. Pro-Israeli is pro-apartheid and pro-racism and pro-violence. Pro-Palestinian is pro-justice, liberation, and equality. And so if you support equality, if you support freedom, if you support human rights, then you also support the possibility of peace between Israelis and Palestinians. And that's what it means to be pro-Palestinian. If you support the other side, then you're supporting racism and violence. So that should be the question. Does somebody believe in racism and violence or does somebody believe in equality, freedom and justice that will lead to peace? And I would frame it that way. And I think that people of conscience all around the world who are willing to stand up for justice and equality and freedom 
can help bring about this peaceful resolution and reality of peace for Israelis and Palestinians. Well, in 2002, the Arab League, representing 19 Arab nations, proposed to Israel that if they went back to the 1967 borders and accepted a two-state solution, they would open diplomatic and economic relations between all these nations. In Israel, they kept repeating this. They put full-page ads in the New York Times, the Arab League. Israel completely ignored it. Washington completely ignored it. What is your argument against a two-state solution, which is often seen as unlikely, but more likely than a one-state solution that you espouse? So, you know, here's the long answer, okay? In, on, on the last day of the 1967 war, the fifth day of the war, which was basically the fifth day was the last day, the Israeli military high commands had their first meeting post-war. And during that meeting, my father stood up, still in uniform, and made the statement that, you know, now Israel is clearly strong and has, you know, is here to stay, and therefore it is now time to make peace with the other people who we share the land with, which are the Palestinians, and he proposed what we know today as a two-state solution where Palestinians would be allowed to establish their own state in the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. And this became, this is what we know today as a two-state solution. As he was saying these words, two things happened. Number one, at the same time, Israeli bulldozers were destroying Palestinian towns, villages, and neighborhoods and building massively, building massively in those areas for Jews only. Immediately after the 67 war, they were doing it as the war was, was, you know, was over. They didn't wait a year, two years. This happened immediately. And he was taken aside by his friends, by Tucker Bean and others to say, what the hell are you talking about? Why in the world would we, you know, as they say, give back these territories that we finally took? And, you know, we just finished the job of 1948. I mean, that's how they framed the 1967 assault on their Arab neighbors as finishing the job of 1948. So... And then since then, all the way to this day, more than 50 years, Israel has done everything it possibly could to make sure that a two-state solution would never happen, would never be possible, and they succeeded. Israel established a single state over all of historic Palestine. It's the apartheid state known as Israel. Israel is the one that established a single state, not the Palestinians. Of course, the Palestinians have been talking about a democratic state with equal right on all of historic Palestine. Israel created apartheid state with rights only for Jews over the same piece of land. So Israel can't now complain and say, well, we want the two-state solution. The two-state solution is not a possibility because there's no partner on the Israeli side to this, number one. Number two, why in the world should Palestinians agree to a two-state solution? Why in the world would Palestinians agree to accept anything but all of Palestine free and democratic with mechanisms to allow the right of return to take place? It's an absolutely absurd idea it was an absurd idea from the beginning. It was maybe naive on my father's part, I'm not sure. But Israel made it clear that it was never going to allow it to happen. And they, you know, this is the reality today. There's a single state in Palestine. So the question is not one state, two state. The question is the nature of the one state. Is it going to be an apartheid violent state, as we see now, or to transform it by dismantling the apartheid state and pushing for a free democratic Palestine with equal rights on all of historic Palestine. These are the choices. The two-state solution is not a choice. It's, an, it's, it's nothing. It does not exist. And it will never exist because it's the, the entire country is a single state. And what you're saying is one state already exists, but it's an apartheid state, and you want to make it democratic for all people who live there. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. And the Zionist movement created the one state. The Zionist movement made it impossible to separate Palestine. I don't think the separation of Palestine was a good idea to begin with. I don't know why Palestinians should agree for anything and then all of their country, you know, uh, stayed on, on all of the historic Palestine. But, you know, Israel has established this. Israel can't complain when Palestinians say from the river to the sea because Israel established a state from the river to the sea. Israel created this and now they complain when Palestinians say we want the country to be free from the river to the sea as opposed to apartheid from the river to the sea. But the notion of a single state from the river to the sea was established by Israel, not by Palestinians. David? So with apartheid and the dismantling of it, you would have to have a truth and reconciliation process. Was South Africa's truth reconciliation process the gold standard? And could Israel, in order to start a one-state solution, could a truth and reconciliation commission begin? I look at the settlers and... Who, there are some settlers who celebrate the birthday of Yitzhak Rabin's assassin 
I hate to use the word realistic, but how realistic is a one-state solution given the intransigence? And I would say on both sides, grudges that are on both sides. Would a Truth and Reconciliation Commission work? After apartheid falls apart, like in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation didn't happen until apartheid collapsed. After apartheid collapsed, and it's not going to collapse because Israelis agree. It's not going to collapse because Israelis wake up one morning in a good mood. Israel is going to have to be forced on its knees. Just like South Africa, whites in South Africa were on their knees. We're talking about severe sanctions. We're talking about closing down all diplomatic missions. We're talking about not allowing Israelis to participate in sporting events, cultural events, you know, any events, academic arenas. They need to be shunned. Israeli society and the, and the apartheid state that they created needs to be brought on their knees. Once that happens, and one person, one vote, elections take place on all of historic Palestine with equal rights, and a new establishment, a new government is in place that represents all the people, then we can talk about truth and reconciliation. Then we can talk about how we create, how we, you know, how we, how we heal the wounds. Is there a Nelson Mandela? Or there are these... thousands. There are thousands of Nelson Mandelas. Thousands of them. When Israel releases the prisoners, and one person, one vote elections are called up, political parties will take place. Will be formed. I'm guessing probably 20, 25 political parties will be formed. People will vote for the best people, the best candidates that they believe will will serve them, and we will have a free and democratic Palestine. I don't think we need a single figure. I think having a single figure has been proven itself to be not so good in most cases. Because people who lead revolutions Miko, are usually Miko. not the best, the best leaders, the best political leaders. Miko, you've been all over the United States. Are you encouraged by the level of resistance by groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, Palestinian solidarity groups, student groups? It's something you haven't seen in past wars. Well, we've seen it as a result. You know, as a result, you know, there's always a response. Ever after Israeli assaults on Palestinians, we do see protests. That, and but I think the problem is that. People are not accustomed to ask to give Palestinians what the Palestinians deserve. So the ask in all the protests that I've seen now taking place is ceasefire. That should not be the ask. After the enormous sacrifice that Palestinians have, you know, the enormous sacrifices the Palestinians were forced to make, after the brilliant, what can, you know, described by Israeli generals as a brilliant military operation by Palestinian fighters from Gaza, Palestinians deserve nothing less than the lifting of the siege, release of all prisoners, and the dismantling of the apartheid state. Nothing less than that should be demanded. And all we're seeing people talk about is ceasefires. Those ceasefires are some great accomplishment. Ceasefire does not provide the possibility of a future where this is not repeated. What needs to be demanded now is a political solution that will ensure the safety and security of Palestinians. And that is never part of the conversation. A ceasefire does not secure the life of, or the security of Palestinians because we know Israel will violate it a week later. So what is needed, to, what the demand that needs to be made and is not being made, it is not being made by any of the protests that we've seen, is a permanent end to the violence against Palestinians, a permanent guarantee to the safety and security and freedom of Palestinians. Billions of dollars invested in the Gaza Strip to help heal Palestinians and rebuild their homes and rebuild their lives. That should be the ask. Nothing less than that. Palestinians deserve the moon right now. They have shown enormous sacrifice. They've had shown enormous courage. And all people talk about is a ceasefire, as though that's going to change anything. We have to demand everything for Palestinians and be relentless with this ask. Nothing less than that. And unfortunately, I'm not seeing that demand being made anywhere. Well, it's just the reverse on Capitol Hill. They want to pass $14.3 billion in addition to the annual budget for Israel to send more munitions and arms and exacerbate the situation further. Do you ever have members of Congress ask you to come up there and have a conversation with them? Have you ever gone up there and talked with some of the legislators and their staff? No. I mean, you know, here and there, here and there is, you know, speaking to, you know, Rashida or, or Rashida Tlaib or somebody like that. But no, of course not. I mean, but the problem is not that. The problem there are two problems, I would say actually. One is there is no Palestinian presence in Washington, DC. So even if the decision makers, even if the legislators wanted to make an informed decision, they can't because nobody's presenting the Palestinian side of the story. 
So all they hear, and all Americans actually hear, for that for that matter, is a very compelling myth, a very compelling lie that is being perpetrated by Israel, and there's nobody presenting the other side of the story. So in the absence of the other side of the story, nobody can make an informed decision, even if they were inclined to do so. And as a matter of fact, me and a few others right now here in D.C. are engaged in an initiative to start and establish a place here in Washington, D.C. We're calling it Dara Horia, or you know, House of Freedom, that will do just that, that will fill that void of having a presence in Washington, D.C. that will counter these campaigns by the Zionists, that will counter the hundreds of emails that every congressional office receives, that will counter the story that will, you know, that there will be a balance to what the press is receiving, to what the diplomatic corps is receiving, and what the American people are hearing. Because right now there's nobody doing that. So again, in the absence of that, there's not going to be change. I think that's one thing. And that's a big one. That needs to happen and has to happen immediately. And we're working as fast as we can to put this together right now, this, you know, Dara Horia. And the other thing is that as constituents, we're not demanding enough. There's a gap. And we've seen this in Europe. We've seen this in other countries. There's a huge gap between the public support for the cause of justice in Palestine and what happens in the halls of power. And it is our responsibility to close that gap. So here in America, it's particularly difficult, again, because there's nobody presenting in a strategic, intelligent, you know, systemic and well-funded manner, the case for Palestine, if you will. How do people want to support this? Contact you or your group. They can email me, mikopelded at gmail.com. They can just email me or send me a message on any of the social media platforms. I'm on all the social media platforms working on this right now. Last question, Hannah. Thank you, Ralph. Miko, in order for there to be an apartheid state, the state needs to define who is in which racial category. How does the state of Israel define Jews? And what relationship does the International Birthright Program have to reinforcing the ruling class in Israel? Well, one of the most contentious political issues since the state of Israel was established was trying to define or avoiding defining who is a Jew. There have been attempts to pass laws, to pass legislation defining who is a Jew. It's called the who is a Jew question, the who is a, is a Jew legislation. And of course, they don't want to do that because there are lots of different definitions and they are scared that if they you know, go with one faction, then they're going to uh, alienate somebody else. So there is no definition of who is a Jew other than somebody who was born to a Jewish mother and that's it or converted. And the conversion issue is a very, very, very you know, contentious issue because the Orthodox don't accept the other conversions and so on. But basically, if you are a Jew, your ID, and Israelis all have like an ID card. If you're a Jew, it says Jew. If you're not a Jew, it says Arab. And that's how they differentiate. Now, if you show up at the airport with a passport, Israeli passport, and you don't look necessarily like an Arab, and they look at you and they smile and say, hey, how are you? And as soon as they open the passport, they see the name or they see the, the designation, that's it. The story, you go through a completely different kind of processing. And it's not just at the airport. I mean, if you apply for a mortgage, if you want to buy a house, if you want to open a bank account, if you want to get a driver's license. I was speaking to friends of mine in Lid, the city of Lid, which is the occupied city of Lid, where Tel Aviv Airport sits. And they were, they're building massively there to bring more Jewish residents to the city because it's, it's a mixed city. It's about 40% Palestinian. And so they're building massively. So this gentleman I was talking to went to register to buy an apartment. And they told him, sorry, it's all full. The list is full. An Israeli Jewish friend of his went to register and they said, oh, sure, we got lots of spaces. Which one do you want? And he said, wait a minute, but my, my Arab friend just was just told that you're full, that there are no more, no more apartments available. And they said, well, what do you want? We can't let Arabs come in to live in, this, in these developments because if they do, nobody else would want to buy. Nobody would, else would, 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 would lease from us. So, I mean, this is openly, this is openly done in every aspect of life. If you're an Arab, you get a completely different treatment. And of course, there's the Israel passed the nation state law. And like I described earlier, the home demolitions and water distribution and all of that. So Israel knows it's very it's a very effective system. Not everything is necessarily set in law. Some things are just, you know, the way they are, the way it is, and, and people accept it. In terms of the birthright, I think birthright was a failed attempt to try to get young American Jews to come and live in Israel. And it was a it was a massive as far as I know, it was a massive failure. Well, we've been talking with Miko Pellet, author of the book, General's Son. For more on his views about a real political solution for the Palestinians and Israelis alike, Susan Price interviewed him in a publication called Green Left Weekly. 
October 31st, 2023, issue 1393, for anybody who wants to go further. Before we conclude, anything that you would like to say that you haven't been asked about? You know, the only thing I would say is that we have to start realizing that what, what is realistic or not realistic is up to us. You know, the Arabs always talk about, you know, Salahuddin, the day when Salahuddin returns. Well, there's no Salahuddin. We are Salahuddin. We are the ones who have to make the change. So if we want to see the possibility of peace between Israelis and Palestinians materialize, we have to act in order to bring down the apartheid state and create a just, democratic, free Palestine with equal rights. It's going to be up to us, and we're going to have to push hard on the legislature, all elected officials, from you know school people running for school board all the way to people running for national office. Number one and number two, where we have to push back on you know the media, you know Bill Maher and Jordan Peterson and all these and all the networks when they interview Netanyahu and when they interview Israeli spokespeople, they never push back. They never push back, and if they push back a little bit, then it becomes a big deal. So we have to demand as consumers of the media that they push back against these these criminals. So that, I would just say that, and I think if we do that, then yes, we will be able to see peace between Israelis and Palestinians materialize in a post-apartheid democratic Palestine, you know, on all of historic Palestine. Well, thank you very much for the time and the content of your presentation, Miko. And I hope that we have advanced the public information on this issue, especially in the first part of the hour when we let you respond as the mass media doesn't let you respond to the claims that the Israeli government makes to justify the current slaughter in Gaza. Thank you very much, Miko. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. We've been speaking with Miko Pelled. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, Ralph is going to pay tribute to the late First Lady Rosalind Carter. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, November 24, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Department of Justice prosecutors are empowered to resolve serious corporate criminal allegations through deferred prosecution agreements. But in a new paper, Texas A&M law professor Peter Riley argues that these agreements should not be permitted when corporate misconduct causes people to lose their lives. Riley is calling on Congress to immediately outlaw the use of deferred prosecution agreements in addressing federal allegations of corporate misconduct when the wrongdoing leads to one or more human fatalities. Riley said the deferred prosecution agreement in the Boeing case, for example, was unjust. To date, Congress has failed to draw any boundaries limiting the Department of Justice's use of such agreements as a tool in resolving allegations of corporate malfeasance. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. Ralph, before we go, we all heard the news about the death of Rosalind Carter, the first lady during the uh, Jimmy Carter administration, and you had something you wanted to say about that. Well, I've always thought Rosalind Carter set the standard for first ladies. I first connected with her and Jimmy Carter after a reporter called me when Jimmy Carter was running for president in 1976. And he said, you know what Jimmy Carter just said? I said, what? He said he was going to ask you for nominees to head the federal regulatory agencies. That's where he's going to get his names. I said, well, I've, I've never experienced that before by a president or a presidential candidate. And next thing I knew... He invited me down to Plains, Georgia, for a weekend. And before I knew it, I was assigned to be an umpire for the softball game between the campaign workers for Jimmy Carter and the media reporters who were there. And then I was invited for dinner at Rosalind and Jimmy's modest home to stay overnight. And they made me black-eyed peas. I had a very modest meal with them, a lot of conversation in a very modest home. They really were pretty authentic people. They didn't pontificate, they weren't pompous. And it's really sad to see that she's no longer with us. She was a great leader on paying attention to mental health situations that affect millions of people in the United States and were often stigmatized if they admitted they had such a mental health problem. And she helped erase that stigma and she was indefatigable and very low-key, southern accent, 
they called her the steel magnolia. So it's very, very sad to see her go. And this was a marriage of all marriages, 77 years of marriage between Jimmy Carter and Rosen. Jimmy Carter is now 99. He is in hospice in his little modest home in Plains, Georgia. And I'm sure his grief is deep beyond belief. Well, thank you for that, Ralph. I want to thank our guest again, Miko Paled. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis and In Case You Haven't Heard. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to capitolhillcitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at ralphnaderradiohour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is the invaluable Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wint. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when our guest will be patriotic millionaire Chuck Collins to discuss his new report, The True Cost of Billionaire Philanthropy. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you. The new issue, Capital Citizen, is out. It's got two short bills that you might want to support that would change Congress like never before. It probably will poll behind these two bills in the 90s with great left-right support. For a copy, or many copies, go to capitalcitizen.com for $5 or more. You'll get this print-only 40-page newspaper sent to you immediately, first class. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. After we wrapped up with Miko Pellet. Steve and Ralph reflected on the mainstream media's Orwellian coverage of Israel and Palestine. Don't you find that the ultimate? I mean, that one, of all the examples, that one has to get the cake. It's almost like they're acting in bad faith. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's well, beyond Orwell. <laughs> well, yeah, speaking of Orwell, I was you know, reading about the hostage deal that's supposedly taking place and had exchanges with people about the coverage of the New York Times and how, you know, people are telling me that it seems pretty balanced. And so I was just looking at the language of this one article, and they're talking about the hostages. And in the New York Times, Israelis are slaughtered. Palestinians are collateral damage. Yeah, that's right. Israel. Not is only that, but, but the New York Times cannot use Israel as a noun attached to an active verb. It's like, Smoldering ruins cover hospitals in Gaza. It's like, you know, who's smoldering the ruins? <laughs> the Palestinians can't even get the headlines right with the New York Times. They don't avoid saying Russia destroys this and that in the Ukraine. But it's somehow Israel's never in the headlines. <laughs> it's the same way they talk about cops killing people at home. You know, the person shot by in police encounter. It's like, well, who shot them? <laughs> Yeah. Well, they, they, another one I picked up is Israelis are taken hostage. Palestinians are apprehended and detained. Yeah. Yeah. We're, Israelis are murdered, but Palestinians, they don't use the word murdered for Palestinians. You know, there were snipers sniping in the maternity wards before the sergeants told them to stop it. I mean, the bloodthirsty revenge that Miko pointed out is really pretty yeah. limitless yeah. because they know they can do anything they want. They can kill anybody, you know, even if it violates uh, military orders. Yeah. Target practice. Yeah. You noticed that too, huh, Steve? 
Well, yeah, there's just the language is, I, I just noticed that this morning when I was reading about the hostages, especially this one where they talk about Israelis being taken hostages, but then they talk about Palestinians being apprehended and detained. Now they've tripled their hostage. You know, they're arresting people in the West Bank and Gaza. Yeah. And, and they're imprisoning them right away, obviously without charges, just dumping them into prison. So whatever they exchange, the total held by Hamas goes down and the total held by Israel keeps going up in the West Bank and Gaza. Yep. Well, just this 150 Palestinians for 50 Israelis kind of tells you what the exchange rate is there, is that, you know, you can get three Palestinians for an Israeli. That's the value, it seems. That was an achievement. The ratio has been greater. They gave up a thousand Palestinians for one Israeli soldier a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. So the value of the lives are, are right <laughs> there. Change rate. Well, Steve, you know, in Judaism, you're taught if you save one life, you save the world entire. So why should we kvetch about? <laughs> yeah, it's just numbers. Time now for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. The Intercept's Prem Thakka reports 43 members of Congress now support a ceasefire. Some notable additions in recent days include Reps Becca Ballant, Sarah Jacobs, and Jamie Raskin, the first Jewish members to call for a ceasefire, and Jeff Merkley, the second senator to call for a ceasefire. Pressure continues to mount on Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, but they still do not support a ceasefire. And the LA Times editorial board has become the first in the nation to call for a ceasefire. According to Time, Reporters Without Borders has filed a complaint with the International Criminal Court for war crimes committed against Palestinian journalists in Gaza. The complaint cites, quote, deliberate, total or partial destruction of the premises of more than 50 media outlets in Gaza, end quote. This crisis will likely prove decisive for the legitimacy of the ICC, as several countries, including South Africa, have alleged that the court is biased in favor of Western-aligned governments. Haaretz reports former Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, who crafted the Leahy Law, which prohibits U.S. military assistance to foreign security forces that violate human rights, has gone on record saying that the U.S. routinely ignores Israeli human rights abuses. Leahy said, quote, It appears to me that shooting civilians and targeting civilian infrastructure when you can't prove it is being used by Hamas would be a violation of human rights. What is being done to apply the Leahy Law now? I don't know. I know past administrations have been too concerned to do it. It should apply to the Israeli Defense Forces unless the administration, as many have, has waived it. While not calling for a ceasefire, both Bernie Sanders and President Biden have announced plans to reshape military aid to Israel. Senator Sanders has put forth a plan to condition military aid upon multiple criteria, including, quote, the right of displaced Gazans to return to their homes and an end to settler violence in the West Bank, end quote. Barack Ravid reports President Biden is considering imposing sanctions on Israeli settlers who have long operated with legal impunity, threatening to ban visas for violent Israeli extremists in the West Bank. Ravid adds this would be, quote, the first time the U.S. has publicly considered individual sanctions against settlers. KCRA reports the California Democratic Convention was interrupted at multiple points by demonstrators demanding the candidates to fill Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat call for a ceasefire. Rep. Barbara Lee has done so, but not Reps. Katie Porter or Adam Schiff. Barbara Lee won the most votes at the convention, but fell short of the 60% threshold required to get the formal endorsement of the state party. A stunning ceasefire protest in the Bay Area saw activists park their cars on the Bay Bridge, then throw their keys into the water below, making it impossible for them or the police to move the vehicles, per Fox 8. Another protest at the DNC resulted in a police crackdown leaving 90 protesters injured, per The Guardian. Yet another protest at DC's Union Station resulted in three arrests on vandalism charges for protesters leaving bloody handprints on the inside of the station, per WTOP. Expect these disruption tactics to escalate as political leaders continue to ignore demands for a ceasefire. While many colleges are clamping down on pro-Palestine protests, Ryan Grimm reports Occidental has set the model for engagement with student activists. The college announced that, following a student occupation of the administration office, they would pursue a dialogue with the student activists. Both the students and the administration stressed that Barack Obama got his start in activism at Occidental, pressuring the administration to divest from apartheid South Africa. In other news, 
Bloomberg reports the public prosecutor's office in Guatemala has conducted raids and arrests of Samia party members. Samia candidate Bernardo Arevalo was elected earlier this year, successfully dealing a rare defeat to the openly corrupt political establishment in that country. The public prosecutor's office also announced they will file charges against Arevalo, his vice president-elect, and several Samia congressmen. The State Department has decried this move and is seeking to, quote, impose additional visa restrictions in response to anti-democratic actions in Guatemala. Finally, More Perfect Union reports that, quote, for the first time ever, U.S. auto workers have gotten a shuttered factory reopened. Workers at the massive Belvedere, Illinois, Jeep plant were laid off or told to relocate in March. Now, the plant is not only reopening, UAW won three times as many jobs and a $30 an hour wage floor, end quote. The stunning victory shows what is possible in terms of revitalizing domestic manufacturing with a renewed labor movement. And that is something we can all be thankful for. This has been Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too.